0: Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Perrier. Today the spotlight is on Kurt DeBeek. CEO and CTO of SyncFloor, a marketplace of commercial music to be used in advertisements, film, TV, video games, and more. Kurt has lived his life at the intersection of technology, media, and the arts for many years. After over 20 of those years at Microsoft, Kurt spread his wings as a musician, label founder, and now tech startup entrepreneur. It was a joy connecting with Kurt, and I hope you enjoy our talk. If I close my eyes... I hear a slight accent in your voice. Is it is it a Caribbean lil? Like I yeah I think, yeah absolutely. You got it. You got it straight
1: right, <laughs> right. Yeah straight on. Yeah you're good. You're good. You know. So yeah, where I'm are you from? from? I'm from Trinidad originally. Trinidad oh okay. Cool. Yeah yeah yeah. And so um, a lot of people mistake it for a Canadian accent. Um, That's what I was thinking. And yeah yeah. Trying to do and the math on your last out, name. <laughs> yeah. right right. And, and, right exactly. And and as it turns out, you know, fairly typically for the, the Caribbean diaspora. Right. You know, especially, you know, if you think about that East Coast migration, right, you go, you know, from the Caribbean to, you know, Miami, New York, Toronto, London, (laughs) sort of, you know, heading, heading north that way. Yeah, even Montreal. I actually have a lot of family in Toronto. Um, And so, so I'm sure I picked up some stuff from, from visiting them. Yeah.
0: Yeah. What a, um, what a great city. I love Toronto. A lovely
1: city. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Can
0: you just tell me your story of how you wound up in Seattle?
1: yeah yeah left trinidad when i was 16 to go to college um that was in miami at uh, university mm-hmm. of miami you know did uh, uh computer engineering there and um you know uh coming out of there i was on my way to grad school i was supposed to, i was heading to stanford for grad school and um uh, for the summer i interned at microsoft uh you know and so i came out here to intern for the summer about two months in they said why did not you just stay and i was like hmm i could you know, go to school and starve or I could stay here and not starve. <laughs> I was like, I'll just stay here. I like to eat. <laughs> so, so I stayed here. Um, and the, the rest is history. I, I don't I don't think I ever told Stanford I wasn't coming. So, so <laughs> I just kept, skipped out. Are they still there's, sending you bills? There's, there's, <laughs> there's, probably, there's, probably some, there's probably some professor there wondering where his, you know, his TA is or something. <laughs> 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 that guy never showed up.
0: <laughs> so... All right, I, that that's thank you for that. So, no um, you arrive in Miami at sixteen. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What was that experience like coming from Trinidad yeah. to Miami? As by the way, you know, one of the leading undergrad, you know, computer electrical engineering, yeah, computer yeah, science yeah. programs in the country. Like, how and why there? And can you yeah, tell me yeah. that story?
1: Yeah, sure. You know, so as a bit of a, uh, an intersection of two things, you know, my, my, my mom had, t- had actually a year before taken my brothers up to Miami. The typical story, right? Seeking opportunity, a better life, that kind of thing. Um, and um, at the time, you know, I, I could have gone and I had been recruited on a scholarship to University of Miami, an academic scholarship. And my dad was really concerned about me going to college at 15. The agreement we had was, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna stay an extra year here in Trinidad, um, do you know the first year of what's called like A levels, weird British school system, um, yeah. kind of thing, and and then go, and so so that's kind of kind of we went. So so going, you know, you know, I was fortunate to have some infrastructure because by then, you know, my mom and my brothers were there a year, but at the same time, it's really jarring because you enter entering college at at 16, you know, is kind of is, is a bit of a trip, you know, kind of thing, you know, and and there are a whole lot of things that you that you make assumptions about in terms of how you interact with people that are likely a bit off <laughs> yeah. from, from the reality, both, both coming as an immigrant and, you know, sort of coming at that young age. Um, that said, I found my people, you know, I, I, you know, I ended up working fairly early on in the computer center there and, you know, I was doing computer engineering and I liked writing code and that kind of thing. And so, um, and in fact, actually, you know, I remember, they were really surprised what happened for at first was the first semester because I was, on a different visa, I couldn't work that first semester. Uh-huh. But, what, but what I did is I, I just essentially worked for free in the lab. Anyway, I'd give people advice. I'd go get printouts. I'd take it back to the back desk. And, and the guy who was running this, the center at one point was like, who's that guy? Did we hire something? And you're like, you No, know, this guy's just, he's just working for free. <laughs> he's like, all right, well, let's, let's hire him next semester then. You know, and so then you know, I started working there. And that was, you know, I think I worked at that center for my entire undergrad.
0: So. so- in a field not known for diversity, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. certainly not, I mean, I'm, I'm doing a little bit of math, but certainly not 20 or so years ago. What was your experience like? And were you aware of those facts on the ground or and were you made aware of them or like, what was the transition like?
1: You know, I mean, the, you know, as I think anybody, any minority person of color would tell you, you know, you're, you always walk around with a certain degree of awareness of at a minimum, the micro, you know, aggressions, if you want to call them, that, that society can put on you. And then, you know, it's certainly like, you know, if you think about like in Miami at the time, right, there, there are certain neighborhoods that are fairly segregated from others. And, and you know, we lived yeah. in, you know, an area that where, wherever we could, where our mom, mom could you know, kind of afford to have us um, be. Um, and But you also see these sharp distinctions. Like University of Miami, the, the campus is in Coral Gables, which is a fairly ritzy area but like you could literally go across the street from the campus and hit a really really poor neighborhood and that happens in various places in my head right so 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 you know you have that awareness of that at the same time you know you you go you go to school and especially if you you're deep into you know a major like computer engineering you're kind of you're cranking away at you know whatever you're doing there and that can become your life in a way right you know so you're kind of really focused on focused in on something um uh I I feel that certainly when I transitioned here, you come you know to Seattle where you know you know in Miami you know at least you kind of have based on a, on immigration, particularly from the Caribbean and Latin America, a lot you know a fair amount of you know diversity along some axis, you know what I mean, and so 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 there's that, but you know you come here and there's there's certainly less of it at least along the axis that I was coming from, um, but again at the same time you know you you kind of find your people right and coming to Microsoft, it's a particular you know culture and 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 Set of people about what they're thinking about and doing. And so you can get, you know, sort of really deeply engaged in that. I I think one of the things that was helpful for me was that growing up in Trinidad, you know, I kind of came from a, a scenario where I grew up where lots of people, you know, looked like me. Right. And so, you know, you bring some of that with you, you know, into whatever scenario you are, even if you're aware of the things that press against you against that you, you know it gives you in some ways a bit of a, a personality buffer to yeah. be yourself so so there's some of that there you know
0: when you were at uh miami at, at the university were you aware of and did you come into contact with the music program at all yeah so it's a
1: great music program right and so um <laughs> so the story is really funny so you know so i i was there i was 16 um you know when i first got there i didn't couldn't drive, et cetera, et cetera. So my mom would come pick me up after school, which, as you can you imagine, is a, a huge confidence builder. she's you know, <laughs> <six>, pretty cool. <laughs> year old going to college, but um, so where she would pick me up was right outside the music school, and so and and my mom, you know, as be, being you know, uh, you know, typical immigrant working mom, she's she was doing a lot of stuff, and, and so she'd pick me up fairly late, you know. So I'd be I kind of spend time sit, sitting around. The music school, listening to stuff that people were playing, talking to random you know, music students, et cetera, for you for know, a couple hours in the evening, you know, just while I was waiting for her to, to come by. Yeah. And so, um, so, yeah, yeah. And it's a, it's a great program. It's a great program. I, I guess I can't, I can't say I know, you know what status it has now, but certainly at the time it was considered one of, one of the, the better ones.
0: Yeah, I, um, I graduated high school in the late 80s, and the two things I remember about University of Miami was computer science and music.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and the medical school was also considered to be quite strong as well. University of Atlanta medical school. Yeah. That
0: was very far outside my realm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Like I say, it was all that
1: stuff was a long time ago. So, so I I couldn't tell you what they're, what they're considered now.
0: Yeah. I was, um, I was a computer science major, but at a much less prestigious, uh, school, I went to (laughs) Connecticut state university. So, um, but uh, it's really interesting to think about what computer science was in the late eighties, early nineties, you know, it was such a transitional time. You know, we still worked on mainframes. Absolutely. uh, That's right. I did, I did a lot of my,
1: you know, sort of initial coding on like Vax VMS systems and And stuff like that. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, it's, yeah, it was, it was a very different thing, but you know, one of the things I felt was true and I don't know if that was because of where I particularly was, was working at, but you know, a ton of my experience in terms of, of, of what then transitioned into working professionally in, in in software, you know, was all about project stuff and about you know sort of picking up work and, and being curious and, and doing things on your own in a way. Like the, some of the best ways to learn about that stuff, because it was such a, a burgeoning, you know, kind of new thing going on, right? Was to just dig in and try stuff out. You know, um, and so so I remember like you know I remember learning C for instance because the School of Education commissioned a set of educational games, and they were paying, I think, um, $3,000 per game. And so me and my buddies were like, oh, dude, we got we to gotta do that. But they, and they were like, it's going to be, they have to run on, I think at the time it was Apple II machines, and they had a particular package that you had to use, and you had to use C, and we all had learned Pascal as part of the program because that's what is the thing that you learned at that point, right? And so we were like, we just said, "Yeah, sure, we know C." They're <laughs> you know? like, "We're gonna, we're gonna get this done." And so everybody took their different approach. I think some people would write it in Pascal and then sort of like <laughs> translate the core into C, you know, whatever, like hey, whatever, whatever it's a, you know, you kind of went after that stuff, you know.
0: Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned Pascal when I, COBOL and Pascal were like yeah, yeah, yeah. Were, were, what they were still teaching and. The thing that I've never, I wasn't mature enough to make sense of at the time was being told that COBOL was no longer relevant, but we're teaching mm-hmm. it anyway, it was mm-hmm. such a strange phenomenon. And <laughs> I remember it being pitched as like, you'll never get fired for knowing COBOL, it was basically <laughs> Fair way. enough, fair enough. You know, you'll, <laughs> you'll always be able to get some job.
1: <laughs> That's um, right. There's, there's, there's COBOL code still out there, just wait, well, waiting for you to maintain it. In fact, didn't, didn't we just have an issue with that recently?
0: I, I, I don't know, I, but it makes me think of Y2K, and I remember explicitly saying to myself at the time, man, I wish I had paid more attention to COBOL. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, like, I, think, I think
1: very recently there was some, some program that, that got overwhelmed with maybe its applications or something like that, and, and required, like they, were, they essentially put out a call saying, like our systems were built in this really old language, I think it was COBOL, and they're like, does anybody know COBOL? <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. Even
1: to, even today, right? I kind don't of think so it's like wow. wow.
0: I wonder if it was like the unemployment systems or the Yeah, it was some, it, exactly.
1: Stuff. It was something exactly like that because of you know yeah. with COVID and the, the, the applications for the PPP stuff and all that. Like it was it was um, yeah, it was exactly that. And yeah, so so you, you never know. That stuff's still around.
0: <laughs> so um, I want to I want to talk about your time at Microsoft, but I sure. I want to make sure I understand on the timeline. When did you start creating music? So the latter
1: part of my time there. So I I would say in, in any I mean I, I dabbled in lots of ways because some of the initial um, stuff I did at Microsoft was in the multimedia team. So so I'd always had some you know sort of relationship to music and multimedia and things like that. But putting that aside, in terms of really you know seriously making art of my own, um, that was probably in the about 2010 ish. Kind of timeframe. So you're know, close to, you know, I left Microsoft in 2012 to start Bricklin Records, and um, and yeah, so so you know, it was sort of like a two or three years before that, I I kind of really gotten into making my own stuff, which really took me another level of of depth in terms of connecting with the artistic community here in Seattle, which which is a big part of the story t- towards doing what you know, sort of we're doing now, um, mm-hmm. is connecting with that community, starting that label, learning a ton about. You know, sort of the music industry and how it impacted people in that community, and wanting to find you know more ways to 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 help. But yeah, so so that. But I, so I started at Microsoft in ninety two.
0: Okay, wow. So that's that's an amazing not only a, the, the longevity of the run, but from a product point of view, really the around the first versions. Like what 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 what, what version was Windows on Free one? It's kind of an. So I started in, the, in at the time it's called Cairo
1: which was um, is essentially the next major version of NT before the first major version of NT shipped. You know, so, so Windows NT as they were working on it, as you know, Cutler and folks, they were working on it and so on. There's another team working on what would be sort of this, you know, sort of leapfrog, very object oriented. It was at the time, do you remember when, um, when, uh, when Next was around and-, and Oh yeah, and, of course. Right, that kind of thing, right? So, so a, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the thinking around object oriented operating systems, right, and object file systems and distributed file systems, which that was the team that was in I was in the distributed systems team, um, and doing working on things like replication and stuff like that. Um, those 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 were sort of the the kind of like far you know far out product things that, that we were working on to then come on after we had this new platform in NT as the core. And so so that's the team I was in. At the same time, of course, you know, Microsoft's, Microsoft was about to to sort of hit this big turn that happened with things like Win95 and, and, and stuff like that. And so
0: yeah. Yeah. It's So, 92 would have been, like, I guess, towards the tail end of, like, the first successful version. Of that's right.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: Yeah. Oh, and then, so when 95,
1: yeah, you know, sort of took it, skyrocketed, you know. Skyrocketed, you know?
0: Yeah. And so, um, which, I guess, begat XP and sort of... The, Yeah,
1: yeah, so at the same time, there was this other teamwork on Windows NT, which was a whole new kernel engine infrastructure for building out our operating systems that would become the core of what, you know, sort of Microsoft operating systems were to be. Um, And so, yeah, so that was just this sort of parallel track.
0: Did you ever use or come into contact in person with the next queue?
1: No, I did not. No, I did not.
0: Yeah, Uh, I wish I I can't imagine
1: many people have. I (laughs) I wish I had. I wish I had. It's one of those things. Everybody was like, "Oh man, I want to see one of these things. I want to touch it myself. Not just not just repress things about it all that." But I didn't get a chance to. to I remember. I'm sure somebody
0: has one just sitting around somewhere now. Oh, there's got to be a few floating around Seattle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, Paul Allen had a few. Um, It's funny. I I can remember more than anything else about that company. I remember the trade ads and sort of the um, just like the the computer porn of those apps, it was so beautiful. But yeah, I never, right. I don't think oh, I, I had- post script
1: rendering and stuff like that. You know, it's, like, it's exactly. just like, yeah, you just like, it's yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, you know. I've never knowingly met anybody that played with one. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. And so the core of that platform became iOS, right? That was ultimately when Jobs came back to Apple, they took the next operating system and that's when they blew out, like, System 7 and all that. They Because they, they, Apple at you know, that time I, through the early 90s were having such legacy problems with their OS. Yeah,
1: they, they certainly were. I mean, ultimately, I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't in the team, so I, I couldn't tell you, like, how much of, you know, sort of one thing survived into the next as such. You know what I mean? Like the, um, no pun intended, having built large systems and run teams building large systems, you know, what what may seem like a straightforward path from the outside in terms of like oh yeah you know they brought in this thing and so they must have just thrown away this other stuff and like just started here but well, that it's usually not as as simple as that you know what I mean uh, you know uh, especially when you have existing customers and compatibility you have to think about and you know migrating developers to new platforms you have to think about and things like that and you know pragmatic considerations in terms of like well you know some you know there's some pieces of code in that thing that That work pretty well, (laughs) and and we know how how it works and how compatible it is. So maybe we'll bring some of that over here and put it together with some over here.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the notion of 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 developing, I mean, for either of the companies, for Apple or for Microsoft um, operating system, and having to support all those legacy enterprise people, um, and really only one spades. Yeah, yeah, and I think only every you know. 10 or 15 years or so are they really sort of allowed to press the reset button and say <laughs> you know, this is a hard migration that everybody better do that's by right, X date? Right. Uh, right. it's incredible so yeah, yeah. and apple's going so through it,
1: another interesting one on that too right like the, you know with the the move back away from from intel chips you know there's a whole there's a whole conversation like that that's happening again you know, yeah, and I ones.
0: can't. I, that that's fascinating when you think about how many iOS devices are out there. How how do they pull that off? Do they have to fork the, the operating system? Well, I mean, I think the, the most of the conversation has been
1: centered on the, um, the Mac OS and Mac laptop platform. You know, kind of like that. You know, in terms of the, the chipset migration. Um, you know, the the uh, you know the iPhone and iPad have been on sort of Apple Silicon already for a little while now. Um, and so, or some, you know, some degree of that, but like, but you know, all of their, their sort of desktop stuff, that's where they're, they're moving. Um, I think that, I believe that's where that conversation is centered.
0: And do you, uh, do you understand like, or could you help me understand why, what's the genesis of that decision? What's the benefit to Apple of doing that? It was such a big deal when they went to Intel, um, is it, is it simply a, a uh, supply coming, chain issue or? There is, there's certainly some of that, right. You know, sort of bringing,
1: bringing everything under their control, um, you know, sort of allows them to, to develop uh, an, an innovation strategy and timeline that is, is much better, uh, you know, sort of understood and aligned with everything else they're doing. So that's, that's one thing, right. It, it, you know, one of the things that, that, you know, it's painful you know, for, for many companies is when, you know, the core of something they're building like has to, has to wait on somebody else before they can innovate in a particular way. Putting that aside, you know, I think there are some practical considerations from a technical viewpoint about, you know, power consumption and, uh, and so on. Um, and, you know, so integration, like you'll, you'll find that, you know, in, I would say in the history of software and platforms, that you'll find this kind of you know uh, we'll call it bundling and unbundling that happens in many spheres right and you know the advantage you get when you have something completely vertically integrated is that you can move things forward right innovation forward in a in a in a pretty fast way but of course you you, you lose the the sort of um, plug and play you know ecosystem benefits that you might get otherwise and and, and depending on what phase of your cycle you're in one path might be more attractive than the other. Um, yeah. But, you know, um, Apple has been clearly over time building, you know, this, this capacity for taking that type of thing under their own control for a while now. And so, you know, it may simply be that they looked at all of the pros and cons and the corresponding things that the ecosystem would have. Like you can, you can argue that now, you know, you, you know, a, a big thing that would stop you from doing things like that is, is the idea of compatibility issues. Like, are your customers going to have access to applications and things like that? And they have a, a bit of a, a path there now because they've built up a whole ecosystem of applications that people could, could you know, use um, given given the, the App Store and the App Store platform and, and so on. So, so you know, it, it, without being in the room with the team, like, you know, I, I'm sure there are plenty of things that went into that decision, but that's some of the stuff that I imagine.
0: So it sounds like a, a part of what you're saying is that it's an acknowledgement that the hardware and the software development and innovation are even more sort of interconnected than, than before. Oh, sure, sure, it's not right. simply a platform to build on
1: there. Sure. Yeah. And it's that, you know, depending on what your goals are and, and what phase you're in, right. You know, like, so if you take Microsoft, for instance, right, the, essentially Microsoft commoditized hardware um, and you get, you can get certain kinds of innovation by doing so. Right. Um, but at the same time, you take on a lot of legacy, especially as you get to a certain scale. And, and it depends a lot on what your customers are expecting from you in terms of innovation. We, you know, at Microsoft we we had a fundamental belief that you know the innovation was in the software, right? The the hardware, you know, especially with Moore's Law, the hardware would continue to, to provide a platform for us to do more and more interesting things in software. Um, but if you look at today's world, you know, with you know, with phones or iPads, et cetera, and requirements around power and innovations you want to have in cameras and um, and on and on and on, there's, there's more integration than that. And so, so Apple has, has tried to benefit from, you know, sort of a, a vertical integration across the board so that they could do something new. And it is a mix, right? Like if you think about what they did with um, the 10 series, right? And the camera, right? It's this kind of interesting mix of hardware and software innovation that gives you this, you know, sort of great leap forward in terms of, of capture, right, um, uh, and, and, you know, intelligent capture, right? And so, you know, it just it just, it just just depends, you know, it depends on your worldview and, and what stage you're at. Clear, clearly, Apple has gone back and
0: forth, right? Yeah. When they say they're moving to an Apple chip, or an Apple chip set, does that, 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 they're literally in the fabrication business now? Or is somebody designing There's certainly, a, there's, I suspect, I, I, so I,
1: I guess I should start off by saying I, I couldn't tell you accurately. Like, I don't, I don't know what How much of the pipeline they're doing themselves like for you know Apple employees versus what parts are are outsourced, and how closely they're outsourced, like companies that are like this or companies that are like you know sort of uh, uh, at, at more arm's length, you know my suspicion is that you know they have a team that is doing chip design, certainly, and insofar as that chip design has some modularity, you know maybe there are parts that are commodity that they say so it's likely that the the stuff for for networking for instance they probably pick up a sub module from somewhere some trusted mm-hmm. you know provider and say okay we're going to just rely on that because we're not we're not trying to innovate there there's a bunch of standards out there on that you know insofar as those standards move forward or we help push those standards forward that's fine but you know that's not where we're gonna you know spend team time so so it's probably some mix but but I, I would say that they probably have quite a bit of you know, overall system architecture and chip design that's that's in-house, but uh, you know, yeah. I, I don't, I couldn't tell you for certain.
0: Yeah, yeah, given the capital expenditure to fire up a, a fabrication plant, there's only a handful of companies that are probably truly capable of it, and with their cash position, I would think. Oh right. yeah, they, they can certainly do a lot
1: with their cash position, it's just, you know, a matter of, you know, whether, you know, how far down the pipeline they feel it makes sense to control. They're, of course, yeah. notoriously close, <laughs> you know, they keep things close to their chest and and to do that you want to keep a certain amount of stuff in-house but you know they've managed to to be to be successfully close to the chest with a lot of stuff even when they were working with intel on things right i think i think they've done a good job of impressing on companies how much that is a core value for them right so so i, I think few people are willing to to cross them on that
0: you know yeah when you were at Microsoft it seemed there was a there was a large portion of your time there that was focused on on media related products
1: so yep yeah, 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 yeah. Um, they still, uh, um real do you remember real jukebox yeah, of course, yeah <laughs> so do you remember when Microsoft first came out with a version of the windows media player that had c d ripping and the media library and that kind of thing? I wrote a lot of that stuff <laughs> yeah that's that was that was that was me and my team yeah. Yeah. so so yeah so, so it was kind of back in those days you know i did a lot a lot of multimedia work for on the client on the server i did you know a lot of multimedia server work as well um it was good times but media platform stuff
0: it's so funny to talk to people that were around during that area era and all of the sort of like the island of lost formats whether it was yeah, yeah. You know, liquid audio <laughs> or um oh remember yeah A liquid B. audio <laughs> remember A B, the the loose and at and uh format uh-huh. that was that was supposed to be the that and liquid audio were the audio file of the yeah day. yeah
1: exactly um, exactly
0: yeah all sort of one fell swoop the mp3 world just wiped yes yeah that that's whole, right that's right the that whole thing away so when you were developing were you thinking about cross-platform or interoperability, or were you primarily like, this is a Windows application? How did you think about that?
1: Um, In those days, putting aside, you know, the stuff that you would typically do around networking and network protocols, which, you know, you you have a certain thinking about interoperability there. um, You know, it was pretty much building, you know, Windows clients, Windows servers, that kind of stuff. But, you know, I have at various points in my career, you know, thought fairly significantly about, you know, cross-platform, particularly actually in the latter part, um, where I was running, you know, parts of, of the office mobile infrastructure because I worked on, on mobile productivity for a while as well um, at a time when, you know, for instance, Microsoft had thought about doing productivity stuff with Nokia and, and, and so on. And so, so yeah, so, so I definitely thought both in terms of very Windows-specific stuff as well as, you know, sort of cross-platform, which, which you know, cross-platform comes with its own, its own unique challenges.
0: Yeah. Towards the end of your tenure, uh, did I read correctly that you were deeply involved in the whole Nokia yeah, yeah, so,
1: so from the, from the, the, the office slash, you know, business division side, um, which actually is where the first, uh, you know, sort of connection with Nokia came was that, uh, you know, Microsoft and Nokia got into a, a, an agreement to, to bring some of the office uh, mobile uh, technology and applications to the, the Nokia platform. And when we did that deal, I was working for the guy who was the president of the business division um, as his technology advisor. And he, he ultimately actually went on to run Nokia. And so, so I was the technical lead on sort of putting that part of that deal together, which was which a was fairly complex transaction, you know, 100-plus-page yeah. uh, contract kind of thing. And so a <laughs> lot, lot to it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so uh, what brings you to the end of your time at Microsoft? I mean, you had an incredible run through an amazing mm-hmm. shift in not only desktop, but, you know, yeah. connected technologies, the shift to mobile, mm-hmm. working, you know, the, the whole media and streaming landscape explodes. Like you're right there at all these yeah, interesting... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Were the big problems solved for you? or No, no,
1: <laughs> there's still plenty of problems to solve. No, 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 not at all. Like I, I think, you know, for me, what happened is that, you know, at that point, like around, you know, sort of coming towards, you know, sort of 2011, 2012, I, I was on a natural crossroads. And, uh, you know, that thing is that, you know, Professionally, we were coming to the the end of a, a major release cycle for for the Office set of products, and and so so it was a natural time to think about okay, well, what am I going to do next? Um, I was also professionally coming to you know sort of twenty years, being at Microsoft, right? And so so that's kind of a milestone that you think, okay, well, all right, well, you know, what am I going to do going to do next? There, I was also personally about to turn forty, you know, so. So I, I kind of was like, oh, well, okay, <laughs> you know, what, what, what I want to do there, you know. Um, I also had, uh, you know, sort of in 2010, 2010, i come out of a divorce. And so um, I was also kind of, that, in some sense, coming out of that is what really triggered me going really deep on making art and making music as a way to work through, you know, so, uh, uh, a lot of emotional stuff and so it was really like you know at this this crossroads of a lot of different you know a lot of different things and it felt like a really natural step to say okay well why don't why don't I go take a take a right turn you know um and at this you know at the time where I was considering that you know I had gotten you know really connected to this this community of of artists and and I saw like I don't know if you remember around in I'm sure you do actually you can, even what you've done in your your life and career um, Around 2011, 2012 was sort of the bottom of the trough of the last major disruption to the music industry, out of which sort of the the phoenix of streaming came, you know, rose from the ashes, right? And and you know what I've been seeing is that you know a disproportionate impact of of that disruption was being felt by the independent community, and um and that you know sort of you know in empathizing with those artists and those, you know, sort of micro labels and and you know the people really trying to do beautiful music, high quality music, diverse music, and just trying to get access to, to opportunity. I have not heard, you know. I thought, well, you know, what's a, what's a way I can help in this context at a time where I was thinking about doing something different anyway. And so, so out of that came the desire to start, you know, Brickling Records. That took me into a whole different chapter.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, and please, I, I need to hear about this. So. Um, <laughs> Bricklane as a business entity, and what does Bricklane do that's different than another record label, if anything? Sure. Um, and yeah, is you know, is was a was a goal of Bricklane to innovate in any way, or was it simply about providing a platform? Uh, it,
1: it, it was very much about innovating, in that you know, at the time, it's it's, it's so it's really interesting to watch this arc now, but at the time, um, the idea that you would come at a label, and the principles for creating a label, and thinking, okay, what is it that I can do for artists that treats them as a true business entity that you want to create a platform for them to succeed more so than you're trying to create a platform for you to to do your own business, right? Um, If you think about the history of music, right, is littered with people creating value for themselves at the expense of artists, right? The the really, really, you know, sort of old history. That might be
0: the definition of the (laughs) recorded music business. (laughs) Right, right. And so
1: so so you know, so I kind of came at it thinking, okay, well, you know, we're gonna try to create something that feels like a collective, that feels like a family. And that the Mm -hmm. principles around which we built the terms, because we wanted to actually be, you know, on the up and up in terms of how we set up the terms and, and treated artists, would would start with the idea that, you know, this is an investment, not a loan. So when we set up a budget for an artist for a project, we would say, hey, look, you don't have to pay through this. You don't have to recoup through this in order to see revenue. This is us investing in you, much in the same as, you know, an investor might invest in a startup business, right? Um, and that, that right, right there, that in itself changes the whole dynamic, right? You're now partners, truly partners, right? Um, then you say, okay, well, the splits are always gonna be artist majority, right? And then you say, you're not locked in. If you, you do this project with me, and if you want to do your next project with somebody else, I will be happy to help you do it better with somebody else. Right? Um, and then you continue kind of building on those kinds of principles, right? and you have something very, very different for 2011, 2012 as a timeframe. It's much more powerful the course now when you think about modern label services, right? to have things where artists have much more leverage. And, and can get friendlier terms. But back then that wasn't the case. I remember negotiating with the legal team for what's probably the, the more successful act that we had on, on the label um, in that, you know, he did his first record with us and then went on to do and is in the sort of closing parts, I think, of the cycle of the second record, which, uh, which was done on French Kiss. Um, and he, uh, uh, you know, got his publishing picked up by Communion. Um, negotiating with his management team's legal folks at one point they said, hey, so are you guys a nonprofit?" Because <laughs> Because they, so, they were so confused about why are terms... Intentionally. <laughs> not intentionally. not intentionally. I was like, we, did, we just think this is how we should treat the artists, you know, kind of thing. And, and that's, that's how, you know, sort of different, you know, our, our value system was at the time. And so, so, yeah, so, you know, I do feel like we innovated.
0: I can't think of another other way to say it, so I'll just ask you. Say it, exactly. it, say it, say it. Can a label survive financially in that model or is making money not something you need the label to do
1: it's a it's a very fair question it is difficult
0: it is difficult but you know i think it's i
1: i think that difficulty may have had less to do with the principles right which you know and more to do with what was the of a changing environment so much was changing Mm -hmm. in the way in terms of music right so you know how people valued music was changing Right. So, you know, when you think about that shift from, you know, what was a fairly high margin thing about selling CDs to, you know, a whole different proposition in terms of streaming and all that, you know, it's just the business was changing anyway under you, right? If you are an independent, then this is really difficult for independent labels coming up, right? Um, you need, you know, uh, you need time to sort of build that catalog and that infrastructure that allows you to then, you know, rely on some catalog, right, to kind of keep you going. Right in some way, and to find opportunities to actually capitalize on that catalog. Right. That that you, you need time. And and so in some ways it's capital intensive to get started, right? In in you know, in that way. As much as there are many things, many kind of you know, pieces of infrastructure that make it easier to get started, like you know, you can do your distribution through a tune core, or you can, you know, a distro kit and all those things make it easier. But the patience required and the searching for opportunity, and this is where I would say you know, um, getting into the sink floor came out is that, you know, when you look at, you know, sort of what access to opportunity is when the amount of music that's out there is so, so large, right, to 50 million commercial tracks on Spotify, you know, 40,000 tracks a day being uploaded, right? You, you're now trying to, to be seen and heard, you know, in a vast sea of stuff, right? which requires even more patience to try to distinguish yourself, right? To be signal from noise, right? And so, so that, you know, all those things I think make it really difficult to, to bootstrap as a, as a small independent label. Um, we were actually fortunate in some sense in that, um, you know, we kind of t- t- took the typical kind of little steps. Our first step was we, you know, we, you know after signing the first artist, Iskadaf, we, you know, put out a couple of small things um, got connected via uh, a friend at KEXP to a good, uh, you know, radio publicist, right, when when those things were were interesting, right, you know, um, that, you know, that got us at least some, you know, first kind of momentum, you know, and enough momentum on, on some radio stuff, not, not a big revenue momentum thing, but just enough, you know, sort of perception momentum, if you want to call it, to then be able to have a conversation with a publicist, right, who then could get you a little bit more momentum that, you know, now you can have an interesting conversation with a distributor, which at the time, you know, talking, we, we ended up being distributed by in grooves. You know, you get involved with a a, a distributor that has some weight that lets you get in front of, you know, the, the retail outlets, you know, and you kind of, you sort of build things. And at every step that you go, you know, the next person looks at you as, quote unquote, more real, right? If you're like, oh, I'm distributed by, my publicist is, my publishing admin is, my you know, and so you just keep, kind of build so out. a lot
0: of social proof basically along the yeah way. a lot of yeah.
1: social proof right and but but that stuff takes time it takes a lot of time you know um and so so you know fortunately i could you know i could afford to at the time you know take the time and 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 my my motivation was primarily how do i give these artists a platform so you know as long as we were graduating people to some next thing then that was that was great
0: yeah it's a um the way you describe it, it's both for your business and any individual artist project. It's a series of iterative storytelling. That's uh, right. That's right. There's an initial story. You add to the story as you go along, the story changes and grows and develops. And you're always, right. you're always prepping the story for the next person That's to right. hear it. And the next That's right. process. That's right. Yeah. So in your story, uh, tell me about SyncFloor. floor. So how does that, how does that yeah. fit um, into your sort of, you know, into Brick Lane and your business ecosystem, as well as into your larger sort of philosophical sure. or, or worldview? Sure.
1: Um, well, I mean, it's, it's, in some ways it's a natural outgrowth, you know, you know, there's a, something that, that you know, so first of all, the, the reason, you know, that, you know, SyncFloor came into being is because with Brick lane, you know, we had a, a, a significant amount of time to, to look at the music industry and kind of observe where, you know, sort of archaic and arcane processes Again, disproportionately impacted the access to opportunity for the independent community that we cared about. Looking at Sync in particular, it just happened to be like a vertical that we thought, oh, okay, well, you know, Sync is a really interesting revenue opportunity. And I think people have underestimated and undervalued the revenue opportunity there uh, as as something that is now being driven significantly by a new golden age in video right? So, you know, as the lingua franca for, for people in entertainment and education and brand marketing and on and on and on, right? All forms of storytelling, right? The, the, you know, video is the future, you know? Um, pod- podcasting notwithstanding, podcasting is also, to some degree, a great new media thing. And in fact, it's really interesting to watch a lot of these podcast production companies talking about optioning things to TV. But looking at all of this, this stuff, you say, okay, well, that's going to naturally drag in this requirement for, for music, Right? And, and, and if you could take a bunch of the fear and friction out of the processes that are there, you can really unlock a whole whole new realm of commerce. So, so that's, that's the story, that's the narrative that you wanna talk about in terms of the large opportunity that you know, makes this interesting to go after with a startup, something that people want to have venture scale opportunity for. But you know, when, when I looked at it, I kind of said, well, you know, in terms of you know, philosophy, what I can do here is do something that can unlock access to opportunity for the independent sector, where the fragmentation in the independent sector is working against it, right? So, you know, if I'm a production professional trying to find, you know, sort of music to lift my creative, right, um, then, you know, when I think, okay, the independent sector is where all this great music with great creative vision and artistic integrity and brand equity and so on, that's where that stuff lives, right? Really, that's where it lives um but who do i who do i call where do i you know like you know how many how many independent labels and micro labels and so on are out out there how do i get in touch with any of them i i might be living across the street from somebody who has the perfect piece of music for what i'm doing but i never i never know about it right and so that fragmentation kind of says okay well if you could do something to create accessibility to that and have that accessibility be really focused on the creative right? Not, not on the Rolodex, not on the, the, who you know, but on the creative, then, you know, you could then say that, you know, small micro label over in, you know, Phoenix, right? Stands just as good a chance if they've got the right stuff as, you know, major independent sitting in Seattle, you know, or, or, or frankly, a major sitting in New York.
0: Right. And so that's, that's kind of. So functionally um, what is Floor and how does it, so so Syncflor is, first and foremost,
1: a, a marketplace, a marketplace for commercial music for use in productions, you know, film, TV, advertising, podcasting, and you know, all of those things. You know, we come at it, particularly around the independent sector in that we aggregate lots of interesting catalog and provide accessibility to it. And the way we think about that accessibility is in sort of three pillars. The first pillar is is around what we think of as professional discovery. That's the front door. How do you dig through the creates in a way that's, you know, productive and joyful, right? And the core piece of insight that we had was that production professionals have a creative language that they use to specify what it is that they want for their production from the perspective of music. That language is much more in the realm of very natural expression. I'm looking for something you know, thoughtful uh, indie folk, like, you know, feels maybe like Sufjan Stevens uh, with strings, you know. Um, I'm looking for something that feels like Apocalypse Now. I'm looking for something that has the vibe of this American life. And, you know, uh, I'm looking Almost for something.
0: keyword be- driven in a way.
1: Well, well, well it's, and it's not, it's not key, just purely keywords, but, you know, we think of it as natural language music search, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. just, it's as if you and I are talking and I'm trying to tell you, oh, this is kind of what I wanted to feel, what I feel like. And when we do that, we use words that are sentiment-like. Like, so if I said dreamy it, it, in, the, in the context of music, you'll think in terms of a certain kind of tempo. A certain it's Sentiment's it's a much blocked, better word, like, yeah. Right? yeah. So, yeah. Sense, so you say sentiment, but you also say references. And those references could be artist references, they could be song references, they could be cultural references.
0: Yeah. And
1: so our insight was that, well, if you could let those people say those things into your system at, where you meet them where they are, in terms of their creative language. And your job is to interpret that and bring back in real time options that match that creative, and more importantly, have a lot of transparency as to why you did the matchmaking because humans will apply all sorts of extra context to continue iterating and digging through the crates. If you give them the information they need, then then you have something very different and to some degree magical for people. And so that was the first pillar, this idea of what we think of as professional music discovery. The second pillar was that, you know, if you look at production, productions have become more and more complicated, right? You know, the bar for creating productions is, goes, goes up and up. And so you have all these teams of people bringing expertise and creativity to the table. And you, you need systems that allow for collaboration around productions. And modern software is really built around that, that notion. If you think about the things that people think of as really successful uh modern pieces of software that uh, are around productivity and the future of work they think about things that allow for great communication and collaboration around assets uh, a great example in the production realm is is something called frame io um you know they're kind of like the slack of video uh, and video production and and the you know the idea is that if you come at it from this modern software perspective you start to think in terms of workflow you know so okay i've done a search. I found some stuff. I want to gather it up. I want to organize it. I want to share it with other people. I want to party on the same folder as we discuss which ones we think we like. I want to be able to download the stuff and put it into a temp for edit. And I want that to be a direct process. I don't want to have to go emailing back and forth to get access to the instrumental if I need that and things like that. You start to really think, okay, well, how do we create an environment where people can work like that and work together like that really seamlessly? And so that was the other kind of pillar that we kind of look at is modern workflow and And collaboration and then finally you know we said that you know the one of the big things that creates fear and friction in the system today around licensing music for all these different types of media uses is is frankly the drama of clearance Mm. and 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 if we could take the drama out of clearance make it hassle-free we could do something interesting and what we relied on there is that you know the trend is for people to figure out how to consolidate rights then the rights regime in music can be very complex but that complexity is now. There's like sort of a, a, a return force that people are starting to say, well, how do I how do I consolidate things? Right? Labels are becoming publishers. Publishers are becoming labels. You know, and things like that because they're trying to consolidate. And so what we've done is we've said we are going to focus on one-stop music. One-stop meaning one entity can represent or controls the rights around the entire thing, both sides, both the master side and the, the composition side. And in doing so, we now give ourselves the opportunity to let software be the broker and the framework for buyers and sellers, one buyer and one seller, to have a conversation. Right? Once you get there, it becomes, it's much, much easier to create, to take the drama out of it. Right? And, so, and so, so those are the pillars we come at it from. And people are you know, responding to that because they're like, ah, this finally, somebody's come back at this problem and thought about it end to end. And this is the way I want to work. This is the future of sync. And so, so that's, that's, that's what we've done. Um, You know, we've taken it a step further, you know, relevant to to what we're doing now, podcasts is we said, Hey, look, you know, in certain spheres, especially in these new media spheres, you have people coming at this, this, this desire to license music without a bunch of the baggage of how it works today. They just, they're just like, I don't know, it's a piece of music. I want to get it. Right. And so if you could actually then take the same platform that we have today in Syncfloor and configure it in a way that the language and the, the, the presentation is really optimized for a vertical, right, and, and you take all the knobs away that aren't relevant, and you customize the workflows and you use the language that that person understands, you can do even more to unlock commerce, especially at prices that are lower than the typical thing in, in video production, which is where you need, you need the efficiency then, if you're going to scale. Right? Um, and so that's where we, we launched, actually, at the same time that we recently launched Syncflor itself, we launched uh, something called Songs for Podcasters. And, um, mm. and the idea is that this is a sister site that's basically the same you know, platform, but sort of reconfigured, specifically speaking to, to you, the podcast producer, and how you might want to more effectively get access to music, real music, by real artists, with real creative vision and artistic integrity for your podcast productions, and, mm. and at prices that make sense for what you're doing. Um and with a workflow that asks the questions that are in the language of somebody doing podcasting. And so so that's 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 where it built. Oh,
0: that's a very interesting sort of use case or application for the platform. Thanks. Um what's the what's the state of the business today? Like where are you at? Are you a are you a are you a MVP? Are you at Series A? Like you know, just in <laughs> that <natural laughs> life cycle, where are you? Uh, so, so we just recently
1: commercially launched. We are, we are, we're definitely before Series A. We're, we're kind of pre-seed, um, uh, and and sort of heading towards seed is, is the way to think about it. Um, essentially, uh, you know, we've we've we did a friends and family raise in um, spring of twenty eighteen. Um, and then, uh, and that's, you know, uh, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll do this by, by stepping back and explaining the narrative of the, of the, of the company yeah, please. at a high level. You. you know, um, uh, so, so in, we incorporated in March 2017, you know, sort of um, uh, to add a little color to that background. I, you know, in, in late 2016, I was finishing a tour and my last stops were, um, were San Francisco and Oakland. And so I, I, I drove there myself, you know, I took all my equipment, you know, the typical like small indie outfit thing, you know, and, and I, I do sort of industrial synth poppy like stuff. So I've got a whole rig of stuff that I'm you know, kind of dealing with. Unfortunately, that drive and lugging around stuff shot, you know, my back was shot by the time I came back. And so I was kind of laid up, you know, sort of for the last part of, of 2016, heading into 2017. And so... A lot of the thinking that had been kind of going on in the back of my head, and discussing with you know like you know, my co-founder and stuff like that, uh, I kind of said, well, you know, I'm I'm just kind of <laughs> sitting around here anyway, you know, and so we start Titans code and you know playing around that kind of thing, and got to a point where I thought, no, there's some there's a there's a there's something here, and so we incorporated in, in, in March twenty seventeen. Um, in you know the, it took us from that point uh, over a year to get the core technology right. Because you know, um, it's a very hard problem, that, that sort of search engine problem for taking a natural expression, even in the music sphere, um, and, and spitting out something that you could then do matchmaking on, on content with. But we got there and we said, okay, we have something interesting. And so then the next step, having raised that friends and family round in spring 2018, was to go try to create a credible you know, sort of catalog of content that you could you know, kind of you know, use as a, a backdrop to, to see if the matchmaking made sense. And so, um, so we started doing that, and that's a lot of you know f- you know footwork, <laughs> you know what I mean. Unfortunately, of course, you know we you know as having had deep experience in technology and deep experience running a label meant that you know we're, we have you know really strong founder market fit, right? You know? you know, we have credibility to go talk to people about a deep technical problem and a deep music business problem. And mm-hmm. so, so you know, did that for for about a year, um, and then in in sort of late summer twenty nineteen. Uh, raised uh, some money from from sort of three northwest VCs, with the idea that we'd use that to head towards a commercial launch. Um, and in late last year, actually, we additionally were accepted into an accelerator um, in New York that you know was focused on audio and and that type of thing, um, and you know raised some additional funds there. And so you know all of that was sort of the part of the funding narrative arc. But of course, you know the getting the thing out the door was disrupted in many ways by what's happened happening in various spheres of our world. I mean and for me personally without you know ha- you know having a son. And um, the you know from there, you know, we only just recently actually did our commercial launch, like in, in this month. <laughs> so, so, well, uh, congratulations. so so yeah, so we got the thing over the hump and so now the real work begins. <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. You had you had two births uh, and yeah, two we births two births. Yeah,
1: yeah, you know.
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's the initial go to market? Are you seeding it out to um to people who need music as well as uh, trying to aggregate more rights? Yeah.
1: So, so, um, so on the, on the sell side, we continue our kind of, and, and, you know, having put something out there, we're starting to get people coming to us and saying, you know, how do we get involved and things like that. We have a, we have a fairly strong value proposition for independence, right? It's a um, non-exclusive 10% low transaction fee type thing. Um, they don't do much in terms of, what they have to give us. They give us ISRCs and assets, essentially. And then we build out this really rich description of their catalog and come back to them and say, here you go. Here's your rich description. You can use it to mine your catalog yourself. Here's a storefront that you can actually put on your thing. Um, it, you know, for this full meal, these things. And all those things are for free because we're just trying to encourage creating an ecosystem. And we win when they win. We, we, we get money when they get money kind of thing is, is the principle. On the buy side, which is where we're focused now, we've started with a lot of you know sort of classic business development, feet on feet on the ground, talking to creative agencies, ad agencies, production companies, you know, film folks, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, a lot of that is about just building meaningful relationships right now because the production pipeline has has you know gone dry to some degree, right? Because mm. nobody's nobody's getting permits to, to shoot anything, right? That's starting to change a bit now, but but you know, the, the pandemic was a huge disruptor for that pipeline, which means it's a huge disruptor for the post-production pipeline, which means music licensing goes down, right? So, so there's, there's sort of that, that type of, of thing that we're you know, kind of working through. But you know, w- what we've said is that, hey, insofar as people now have the mental bandwidth, right? Because usually in production, you're kind of run, running all the time. And so now they have some mental bandwidth to step back and say, well, okay, what is the future of my work? What's the future of my work in a post-pandemic world? You know, and, and so we kind of are like, hey, you know, here, we, we have a, a big part to, to play in that, and they have the space to have the conversation. And mm. we can build the meaningful relationships that mean that when things pick up, they're like, oh, yeah, those, those, those guys. Right? And so, so that's kind of part of what we're doing now. You know, there will be, of course, you know the the typical thing where you go and you sort of advertise and sort of put yourself out there. Where you've developed some core messages for us. Those core messages are, you know, real music, not stock. You know, real you know real music from real artists. The professional music discovery that's intuitive. The modern you know collaboration and workflow. Hassle-free clearance. All those things. We're putting it together in a way that you know, kind of you know, makes for a clear, clear message. Um, then, you know, what we've done with Songs for Podcasters is something that we're kind of going to double down on because we feel like we have touched a nerve, right? The You know, people are, have been clamoring for a way to get at this kind of music that feels simple, that feels fear-free and things like that. And now what we want to do is we want to find those pockets of podcast creators and producers. Um, typically, you know, I believe by, by approaching the podcast hosting platforms and trying to figure out how to work with them to get at their creator communities, right, essentially, you know, look at affiliate relationships and things like that and really kind of try to drive, you know, sort of traffic from that, that way.
0: And how far up the creator spectrum do you see? What's the audience or the addressable audience, addressable market for creators who would have their content available to be licensed? Do you you hit a certain threshold even in the indie community where they have other outlets that are... Like, are you- well,
1: I mean, pe- people have choices, but I think I think people are seeing that we're doing something interesting and innovative, and we're unlocking new verticals, right? Um, you know, starting with this podcasting thing. And, and our discovery is so rich, right? Like, if you're an independent, right, to have your stuff show up, high up in a set of results, simply because it matches the creative, is really a whole different kind of access to opportunity that's not dependent on the Rolodex. Now, we have a problem that we have to solve still, which is that right now, you know, as a startup that has to focus on, okay, well, what can we do? And what can we scale? Initially, we focused a lot on the independent community, but micro labels, small independent labels, distributors, small publishers, that kind of thing. Because what we found is that as a unit of curation, right? You know, it's it's e- a lo- easier for us to scale in terms of our ingestion pipeline saying, okay, let's talk to you, Mr. Label, and pick up a batch of stuff from you, right? Um, versus a whole lot more, you know, sort of individuals. We have a few individuals in the index, but, but for the most part, we've been, you know, focused initially on these businesses. And then the other thing that we found, which is actually maybe the, the you know, sort of higher mountain to scale, but, but one again, that we, we are committed to over time figuring out how to do so, is that the businesses on the other side, the production professionals, the, the companies, the agencies, et cetera, that are looking for music tend to want a business on the other side who's standing up for the reps and warrants for the thing they're licensing. Mm. Right? And so, so you have this thing where they're like, okay, well, I want to lead with creative, but ultimately when I go through this process that's your hassle-free clearance, I also want to make sure that the person on the other end is trusted. And they're more likely to trust at least an entity, a business entity, that, you know, might over time have, you know, access to, to Eno insurance, and, you know, you know, things, you know, so you get, yeah. you get into this problem where you're like, okay, well, I have to encourage my ecosystem to, you know, sort of be structured enough that, you know, this kind of works for the buyers too. Having said that, I think that there are, you know, sort of call it partitions of a marketplace where you could even have individuals talking to individuals, but, you know, that's, that's something that I think we get to in the future.
0: One last question about this. It's it a nuts and bolts one that I can't help but be curious about how do you scale the ingestion is, is it is it a yeah, machine yeah. learning or is it people
1: philosophically and given where our taxonomy came from and so I'm, I'm, I may give a, a slightly long form answer to this which I guess has been typical in our well no the so taxonomy <laughs> is
0: a question I, I I'm, I'm glad you're addressing it because yeah, yeah. I was thinking wow this sounds a bit like you know the genome project or things of that nature yeah
1: yeah no I get it and so 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 here's where it kind of differs so so you know what I consider to be a core piece of insight that we had was that if you're going to to go after this natural language music search problem, you know, in building a taxonomy, you have a couple of ways you could go about it. A very typical way of building taxonomies around music is to build it bottoms up, right? You you think, how do I describe music? Right? It just music has like you know a key and a a, a specific BPM, and a, you know, on and on. on. You, you kind of build out things that way. And you can, you can be very sophisticated there. No, I'm not disparaging that approach as uh, such. That in fact, we have elements of that approach as well. But you know, sort of our core insight was that what if we took and analyzed a ton of the requests for music from the buy side, from the production side? So, so we took, you know, a thousand of these briefs that people are sending around an email or talking to each other about, and stuff like that. We analyzed the conversation, if you want to call it that. And, and we said, what if we use that to drive what the taxonomy was, that we were trying to make sure that we could most richly express what it is that people were saying from the production side, and then we'd figure out how to describe the music, right, in that taxonomy that you derive from that direction, right? And when you do that, you start to lean a lot more in the thematic direction, and mm-hmm. you lean much more in things that may, may, you, you may say, look, you know what? For the most part, sometimes a producer might be talking about stuff in terms of a specific BPM, but a lot of times they're talking about it at a high level, tempo and feel, which we all know that you know, especially in today's world, somebody might you know leave their uh, their DAW set at you know 120 BPM or something, but the feel of the thing is different, right? Depending on what they're doing in percussion or whatever, you know, on, on and on and on we kind of lean really into this idea that we have to describe the feel, right? And, and the taxonomy is, is rich in its, its methodology for describing it. So having gone down, gone down that route, what that then says is that your ingestion pipeline naturally has a combination of algorithmic and human. You, can, you kind of have to. At least, and know what you can do is you can make your pipeline more and more Sophisticated and more efficient so you can scale what you bring in and how fast you can bring it in. but you do have some element of both these things. Now the good news for us um, is, is multifold, but I' prioritized these things. One, when we looked at the space of content that we need to ingest and what scale we need to get to on the, the catalog side, the aggregate catalog side, what we realized is we're like, oh, We don't have to have 50 million tracks. Our proposition isn't that of a streaming service like Spotify or Pandora. We don't have to have all the tracks because a consumer will just say, you don't have all the tracks, I'm just not gonna subscribe to you, I'll subscribe to the guy that has all the tracks. What we need to have is enough scale of enough diversity of content and enough diversity of price point based on diversity of partners, right? To satisfy a significant portion of the requests, right? And and that we realized is much more in the like six figures. Like if yeah, you get to the point, right? If you get to the point where you have 100,000, 200,000 tracks in an index with the right diversity of both type and price point, then you're a cobalt. You know what I mean? In in terms of like weight, gravitational force,
0: right? Yeah. Um, and I it may not be a great analogy, but it is similar to Pandora in that they're more like a million or 2 million tracks in any given month. It
1: is it is it is it is. And uh, but but I think it hurts the it hurts them more from the perspective of competing against a Spotify, right? Because, you know, the proposition is just different there. What a consumer is expecting, right? There's a baseline that's different, right? Um, a, a production professional is just like, I just care about my project. I just want to find something that's great for that, right? And so um, I'm not thinking that you should have the world of music as long as you have the thing that I want. <laughs> that's right. You know, kind of <laughs> thing, right? <laughs> you know, you know, so that's the one thing that we can lean on is that we have to get to a different place right? The other thing we can lean on is that as much as it might be harder at first, and we can certainly, there are places that I, I'm still like, ah, I want to make our pipeline better from the ingestion perspective. But the fact of the matter is that you do it once and you're done. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like, you're just like, okay, great. And you're, you're accruing value constantly, right? So, so it's, it's not this thing where you're continuously refreshing it. So, so you're, you're stuck, right? In terms of like, oh, shoot, my pipeline isn't efficient and I have to do a pass on this thing every you know a, a full pass on it you know every every month or something
0: yeah that's a great point there could be a certain once you hit your scale of whatever that six figure number is yeah you're then then, it's just you're, a, it's like a calling and replacing or a calling yeah, and ex- exactly
1: you're moving a window right you know kind of thing and so so it's so it's so i think there are a number of structural things that are advantageous in the context of sync that allows us to then be maybe a little deeper and richer in terms of what we do even if it's a little less efficient on
0: the ingestion pipeline. I love it. I'm so, and, and it's, and it truly <laughs> is magic when you put
1: hum, when you put the human side and the, the algorithmic side together, right? You know, and, and you can do that on the ingestion pipeline. You, you can't of course do that in the real time search part of it, but, but you put those things together and you can get real magic in terms of, of the kind of results that you, you can have.
0: So, uh, for the benefit of the audience, can you give me the stink floor and the podcast website URLs so we're hundred percent clear?
1: Absolutely. So it's SyncFloor.com, S-Y-N-C-F-L-O-O-R.com and songsforpodcasters.com.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, that, <laughs> that's, that's certainly search friendly. <laughs> <So> um, friendly. <laughs> I'm going to have to, I'm going to, I'm going to give it a test run. I, I, I'm, yeah. a, I'm a fan from what I've heard. Thank you for your time. Uh, oh, your, your you run over and uh, I want to be... Fun conversation. Uh, I can imagine now uh, you've got to take your rest breaks where you can get them as well these That's, days. Right. <laughs> That's right, and I'm going, going up to take my shift now.
1: You know, I'm sure there's a diaper change waiting for me.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much, Kurt DeBeek. Thanks to Aunt Taylor and the entire team at Light. If you're interested in what we're up to at Light, Visit us at lyte.com. And thank you for listening to Spotlight On. We're available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else that spits out podcasts. Spotlight On is produced and edited by Craig Snyder. Keep your feedback coming. Reach me directly at lp at light.com. Thank you so much. Be safe and stay in touch.